Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. Today, I'm here with Dr. Kelly Brussel of the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center and Dr. Raul Banerjee from the University of California, San Francisco. Thank you for having us. And as we'll talk about, I think this is a really exciting area of research to interplay between, you know, digital health, supportive care, and just, you know, bone marrow transplantation. But it's not the traditional route of research that I think a lot of institutions engage upon. So I think it's really, it's, it's taken a village to get the study off the ground. So what are some of the most significant quality of life impairments that can affect patients undergoing ASCT for multiple myeloma? So one, transplant for myeloma, what it is. So, and Kelly, obviously chiming at any point. So here, this is autologous stem cell transplantation or ASCT, where the heavy lifting is done by chemotherapy. So basically it is a very, very high dose of chemotherapy against myeloma that knocks out the normal bone marrow. And then so we actually pre-collect the patient's own bone marrow, bone marrow cells from the blood and we put them back into the patient after the chemotherapy has been given to rescue their bone marrow from the toxicities that they would have otherwise. The reason I say that is that this type of chemotherapy or this dose of chemotherapy is not used really in any other type of disease or malignancy apart from certain types of lymphoma, certain kinds of testicular cancers. So it's just very, very intense. These are patients who are, and we'll talk about that patients with myeloma have a lot of quality of life issues, but they're, they're generally, most of them are ambulatory. Most of them are walking around, trying to stay fit. They're, they're, they're responding well to the chemotherapy that they've already gotten, which is lower doses and, and often given in clinic. And then all of a sudden we tell them, now we're going to give you a giant dose of chemotherapy that will, you know, make you be in the hospital for two weeks, or will make you have to come in and out of clinic every day for two weeks. We'll feel miserable for a month, sometimes even two months. We'll take about two to three months to get back on your feet again. So it's a very um, lengthy and involved process. We know that it works, you know, in myeloma, we know that it helps to, it doesn't cure myeloma, but it helps to kick the can down the road for longer. It's been shown to prolong progression-free survival, as we say, um, but it's a lot. And I think clinically, as Kelly can speak to, I think as physicians, nurses, pharmacists, members of our healthcare team, we're really good at managing symptoms and managing the myeloma. I think we're not nearly as good at managing quality of life or wellness because we're just not trained in that domain. There's no medical school class or nursing class. I don't think about this in particular. Um, and I think that's where this digital life coaching, where the health advisors coming in, I think provides a really unique uh, element of support as we'll talk about. Why, particularly during transplant, so some of the particular quality of life studies that I could speak to, you know, many of them have shown that quality of life nosedives after transplant, it takes about two weeks to hit its minimum and then slowly comes up thereafter. Um, anxiety and depression go up after transplant, fatigue definitely goes up after transplant, again, two weeks or so after transplant is when people are feeling the worst. Um, other broader quality of life impairments, uh, our group has found at UCSF that a lot of our patients are started on benzodiazepines in the week or two after transplantation. Benzodiazepines, you're probably familiar with some drugs like Ativan or Restoril that are used for anxiety or sleep, but have lots of long-term side effects that are linked with fractures, falls, delirium in older adults, like many of our myeloma patients. And so, you know, that's an example. And, and they're also difficult to de-prescribe. Once you start a benzo, people stay on a benzo medication for long-term. And as an example of even this short-term quality of life deficit from transplantation can have long-term side effects. Other studies have shown that 
you know, uh, higher anxiety after autologous stem cell transplantation is linked with higher rates of PTSD afterwards. You know, studies have shown the kind of long-term quality of life impairments can entail in some patients who have a lot of anxiety during or after transplantation. Uh, one recent uh, European study found is that I think it was only about a third of patients with myeloma who are working going into transplant were able to return to work after transplantation. And obviously that's a big driver of quality of life for these people who are very functional going into transplantation. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and it's not something that, you know, 10 minutes a day when the doctors are rounding by your room in the hospital or a, a 15 minute clinic visit afterwards can really uh, move the needle on. And I think that's why our patients deserve and warrant another layer of support. And I think that's where this life coaching comes in. Anything you want to add there, uh, Kelly? Absolutely. I think to build on, we know for the multiple myeloma population, um, before they get to transplant, typically they've had another course of treatment. Um, mm -hmm. They tend to have both disease-specific frailties um, as well as treatment-related sequelae, and that that um, can be compounded by multiple courses of treatment, as you heard Dr. Banerjee reference. Um, there are patients with multiple myeloma who sometimes have more than one autologous stem cell transplant, so a compounded effect certainly that influences quality of life that's very important to consider when treating these individuals. Doc, many doctors, I feel like, as you know, we we're so used to seeing patients undergo transplantation, we kind of assume that all right, just give it two or three months, and everything will be back to normal again. And I don't know that that's necessarily the case. And I think that's where the health advisors can help patients rebuild their lives after transplant, knowing that the life that they rebuild may not be the same as the life that they had before what happened. In your recent pilot study, how did digital life coaching improve quality of life for patients with multiple myeloma undergoing ASCT? Sure. The short answer is we don't know for sure whether our single arm pilot study, this intervention improved quality of life. I think this pilot study that, again, is completed was geared at seeing whether this technology was feasible during transplantation. Um, the phase two study that's ongoing will help us kind of really determine whether in a randomized manner, quality of life improves with life coaching versus usual care. But the pilot study, you know, was was geared for two reasons. One, just to test out the interface, you know, PAC Health hadn't worked in the peritransplantation setting, they, they worked in the myeloma setting before. And I think there's a lot of um, differences in the transplantation period, including that patients are hospitalized for two weeks and they're really going from feeling again, very well to very crummy and back to very well again. And every week things are changing versus kind of a, a more static ambulatory population where they're just living with their cancer. Um, so that hadn't been really been investigated. And I think for us, we wanted to see, will patients even engage with their coaches in a meaningful way during transplantation? You know, while they're hospitalized, if people really are feeling crummy, um, they are constantly being moved around for tests. You know, they're getting x-rays and getting labs drawn and it might be away from their phone if they have it. They're not getting very good rest at all. Hospitals, as you know, are not known to be uh, havens of sleep for our patients. And so they may not be willing to even speak with someone. And then of course the, the, the health advisors, so the life coaches that are called health advisors at PAC Health, you know, are not people that they have personally met before. And so the question is, you know, going into this big procedure, uh, are patients even going to want to speak with someone who uh, may be able to help them in the long term? but who they haven't met before, particularly in our patient population who are older, you know, prior studies suggest that maybe older people don't use cell phones as much or as well, which I think are all fake, but I think we wanted to prove that. Um, and so, 
essentially we did show that this uh that the um this platform was feasible uh basically a lot of patients were very interested in this so we screened 18 patients for this pilot study 15 of them ended up enrolling um again the, the three who didn't said that they had existing uh resources or wanted to speak with someone whom they knew uh, and not someone whom they don't know but 15 out of 18 is 83 percent of patients were interested in the study even though it entailed you know using their phone more even though it entailed talking to a stranger so to speak and so forth um of those 15, two patients uh, didn't end up uh, initiating the, the program. Um, one ended up, uh, uh, the, the timing didn't work out to connect with the coach, and one ended up declining before they started. So we had 13 patients when we actually tracked. And so, you know, we, to be honest, were hoping to see that the patient would uh, meaningfully speak with their, with their physician at least like once a month. I know that sounds like a very low bar, but that's the bar that other studies have set in the transplantation period because patients are busy, they're not feeling well, and so forth. And to our happy surprise, we saw that bidirectional conversations, meaning patients actually, you know, speaking with their coach uh, by phone or by text back and forth, happened once every 7.6 days on average. So about once a week, patients were meaningfully speaking with their coach. And then similarly, uh, and even while they were hospitalized, and so we looked at just that first 28-day period where patients are feeling the worst, conversations happened once every 6.5 days on average. So again, about once a week, even more patients are hospitalized or once they're recovering for transplantation afterwards, patients felt uh, that they could connect with their coach and actually did um, about once a week on average. In terms of our uh, PRO data, and again, we'll talk about this in future questions, there's no control arm here. So you take these with a grain of salt. Um, we did see that quality of life came down and, and came back up again, as predicted. Again, around week two after transplantation is where patients feel the worst. That's generally the time when their bone marrow is starting to recover from transplantation. So that wasn't that surprising. Um, one thing that I found a little bit surprising is that prior studies really say that everything is worse at that, you know, second week period, what we call count nadir after transplantation. And we found that for quality of life, for sure. We found that for anxiety, um, sleep was about the same throughout the period, at least in our cohort, didn't sleep disturbances didn't get that much worse while patients were hospitalized. Um, what I found was most interesting, and it was a good lesson learned for me, is that I might have guessed that distress, emotional distress, just about transplant about myeloma and so forth would also be worse to count nadir when patients are feeling the worst about to leave the hospital you know going back home after the transplantation um, and prior studies have shown that we actually found that in our study again pilot study small and uh, distress was highest before transplantation in retrospect that totally makes sense i think patients were most stressed out about the uncertainty of the transplant itself more so than of the recovery thereafter of the myeloma but I think it was a good lesson learned for us because we actually started this pilot study in the first week before transplantation. So patients would be paired with a coach five days before they, they got the cells back for the transplant. And you know that correlates to three days before they came into the hospital for their chemotherapy. And so you know we realized that, well, if patients are most stressed uh, before the transplantation and not during or immediately thereafter, then maybe meeting with the coach only a handful of days before they're hospitalized is not sufficient for them to really get to know their coach and vice versa. So we moved to start to back for our ongoing phase two study to day minus 10. So 10 days before the cells go back in for their transplantation. And I think that hopefully will make patients uh, able to 
again, connect with their coach in a meaningful way and just have that intake call to understand what are you worried about? What are your strengths? What do you want to work on? And so forth. Absolutely. I think as Dr. Banerjee mentioned, this was not powered to detect statistically significant difference between these groups. So the data here is purely descriptive from the pilot, but the trends are consistent with our larger overall data set for individuals with a cancer diagnosis participating in the digital health coaching, particularly around mental health and stress, anxiety, depression, where we do see um, a measurable and at times have observed statistically significant change in these outcomes with improvement over the course of the coaching period. So we're hopeful that in our now randomized control trial, which was presented at ASH as a trial in progress, will demonstrate um, some of these trends that were observed during the pilot phase. So how is the current phase two trial continuing this research? The randomization, I think, is important, obviously, because there's some selection bias into you know which patients, for example, speak English, which is an eligibility criterion for this current iteration of the study, hopefully something that we can take care of and fix later for our non-English speaking patients, you know, um, but uh, within the parameters of selection bias, we want to kind of randomize to really get a sense of what is actually the coaching itself um, that's actually making a difference for these patients. And so, you know, something that I've learned during this time uh, period in terms of, of best practices for interventional research, this is obviously not a medication, it's non-pharmacologic in terms of how it works, is that, you know, there's certainly some element of what we might call a placebo effect or what you might more accurately in this setting call an attention effect, where if you just keep telling patients, hey, we really care about your wellness and we've paired you with a coach, um, patients are going to feel better just because they're thinking about it. You know, they're actively taking steps to work on their wellness and so forth, just by virtue of being told to focus on it. And so we are engineering our phase two study a little bit in that um, the, the intervention arm is obviously receiving the full three month package, you know, with the coaching from working with their health advisor over the course of three months, beginning at day minus 10 before transplantation. The control arm, uh, both arms really are both receiving some generic handouts that we've put together um, that are just about wellness um, every one to two weeks. And again, the reason for that is because it's allowing both arms to benefit a little, a little bit from the study in terms of getting some resources they might not think about otherwise. And it's allowing us at least a little bit, not in a purely foolproof way, but at least somewhat so to allow both arms to really be thinking about their wellness and account for that element of increased attention to wellness, and then really hopefully isolate what is actually uh, being added from the coaching on top of just these handouts alone. Anything you'd like to add, Kelly? Absolutely. I think that, as you heard Dr. Banerjee reference earlier, the majority of care for these patients is actually occurring outside of the clinical setting post-transplantation period. And some institutions are even um, infusing autologous stem cells in the ambulatory setting. So the ability to support individual sense of awareness and control over their condition post-transplant is really vital to their outcomes. So we want to make sure that people feel empowered, that they know what to expect, that the education that's provided in that hectic pre-transplant period and even in the context of the hospital setting is reinforced so that individuals are both prepared to report symptoms
symptoms and side effects early and often if and when they occur, and that they also have the ability to kind of plan for what they might do should side effects occur or should setbacks or should they not be um, recovering in a physical way as quickly as they once anticipated. By empowering people with a plan around this, we know that even if coaching and other interventions can't completely eradicate or prevent side effects and sequelae from occurring, that we can empower patients to be proactive in their own health and feel like they have control over that process with a plan. And that's where the the coaching is really pivotal um, to the outcomes of this work. Completely agree. And then I'll add, you know, one of the challenges, you know, and how was a phase two study working on this? I think, you know, Kelly, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I think one of the challenges that that uh, certainly we face when we discuss this, uh, these these, uh, these um, manuscripts and these abstracts at scientific meetings, people ask, well, why not have the coaches just be employed by UCSF? Why not just have them be at the institution itself? And I actually think that there's a nice, I would argue, a nice firewall uh, between having the coaches be from a, a main, you know, qualified, very, very highly functional coaching company like Pack Health and having Optic Care to clinical matters, just because there's certainly some interplay. Obviously, wellness and clinical matters really come together. But I think the, the coaches have done a really good job of the patient comes to them saying, look, I'm having really bad neuropathy or something, or I have a fever, for example. A fever is very much, you know, our jurisdiction, the physicians and nurses should know about it at the treating center. They refer them back to us to remind us of, of that and tell us about that symptom and so forth. But then, you know, I want them to feel like they have someone they can speak to about more broader uh, determinants of quality of life you know, in terms of I'm just not sleeping as well as normal. I just feel frustrated. I'm not you know, getting back in uh, physically active as quickly as I would like and so forth. And they're obviously always more than welcome to, to bring those things up to us. I think a lot of times they don't, or, you know, more accurately, if they do, we don't have much to offer them except just say, look, this will pass, time to time will pass, things will get better. And I think the, the health advisors at PAC Health, the coaches have a more structured and more, you know, patient-friendly toolbox to deal with that because they're actually trained to deal with this and we are not. So what is the role of patient reported outcomes or PRO in this study? So um, so in the phase two study, currently the way it's worded, we might end up changing this, we'll see. Um, we actually, our primary endpoint is benzodiazepine usage. Uh, so as I mentioned to you earlier, I think a lot of our, our patients um, historically were prescribed benzodiazepines or Z-class medications. So these include things like Zolpidem or Ambien or so forth. And again, it, it's a... Uh, it's hard because these medications, you know, I get it, you know, patients need to sleep, they're feeling quite anxious, and these medications do work for those conditions, and no doubt about that, but they have a lot of long-term side effects. Again, particularly in older adults, which are many of our patients with myeloma, the median age of diagnosis for patients with myeloma is 69. So these are older adults by and large. We transplant patients routinely into their late 70s, sometimes even early 80s. So a lot of our patients are in the boat where the risks of benzodiazepines outweigh the benefits um, in terms of delirium, long-term dependence, fractures, motor vehicle crashes, all sorts of things linked to these medications. Um, so we actually were initially, our study is initially was designed to look at that as a primary endpoint between groups. I will say that actually since our initial data came out showing that a lot of our patients get prescribed benzodiazepines and those who are prescribed them stay on them long-term, even presumably after their anxiety and sleep get better. Our department actually took a soup to nuts approach to kind of fix that problem. And actually our, our nurses were the champions of trying to reduce the prescription of benzodiazepines across the board uh, during transplantation and indeed for all of our hospitalized patients. 
So I think that my my suspicion is that we probably won't see a difference between arms on that because our 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 center appropriately has responded much more nimbly than than I was expecting to kind of fix that problem, which is good. So I think PROs will end up being the biggest uh, thing that we look at between the two arms. And again, as Kelly alluded to, even if we can't prevent quality of life from going down uh, after transplantation, again, I, I fully expect that to be the case. I think the area, so to speak, over the curve in terms of longitudinal modeling in terms of that dip or the nadir, how deep the quality of life falls from baseline, I do expect that to be better between one arm and the other. And I do wonder, Kelly, you know, let me know your thoughts on this. I would love to see whether um, the resolution of some of the quality of life impairments happens faster in the digital life coaching arm because they are longitudinally empowered with tools to really understand what's preventing them or uh, from getting back to that quality of life and working with them to get there. Because everyone will get better eventually, by and large, but I think maybe it can happen faster with the addition of coaching. It's very important to us that we're including patient-reported outcome measures that are well-reported and well-adopted in the oncology community. And so for this study, we're leaning heavily on PROMISE measures, which continue to be um, a a primary tool that's used both in clinical trials and then also increasingly in the clinical care setting. Um, In addition, we use the NCCN distress thermometer, which is well-adopted. Our goal with PRO usage is essentially threefold. The first is that the PROs actually inform the coaching experience for the member. So as patients are completing these patient-reported outcomes, health advisors are utilizing that data to help address areas where they may have seen a dip between measure points um, and to be able to then support individuals with evidence-based content to address a particular concern, as well as to escalate up for clinical intervention as needed with the UCSF team. That partnership is critical to collecting data, not just for data's sake, but really for the purpose of serving the patient first. Beyond that, we also can use this data to track and trend. So as you heard Dr. Banerjee allude to earlier, there's a natural meter that happens with cell count, but it also happens with PRO, where we do see well-documented in the literature an expected decline in certain particularly health-related quality of life outcomes during the most intensive post-transplant period. What we're hoping in this phase, um, second trial, randomized control trial, is to be able to detect if the uh, recovery from that nadir, if you will, in PRO happens naturally as a result of the recovery of the patient, or if there is a synergistic effect with the coaching that helps to accelerate and improve the benefit of that recovery. And then finally, we can use this data to track and trend across pre-existing data for this population, the multiple myeloma population. Certainly, there's an increasing need and ongoing need for attention to patient-reported outcomes. Outcomes. And as we use tools that have been utilized either in the context of clinical trials or real world setting, we're able to compare our data set back to say what trends are we seeing more broadly across this population? And how can we use that information to really inform our ability to potentially detect outcomes sooner or anticipate when a decline may occur? There was a study that was just reported this week that looked at 
the use of PRO and its correlation to being able to predict um, in some capacity decline in other physiologic or clinical endpoints. And so this is very important to us as we try to better support the multiple myeloma population, particularly as new and emerging therapies occur for um, these individuals. And so we're really excited to be able to contribute to that science through our work in this protocol. So what role do you foresee that digital life coaching will play in this patient population in the coming years? And also, how do you recommend that it can be implemented into practice? So I think uh, two things I'll say. One, the existing product needs to be as scalable and implementable as possible. I think a lot of interdimensional studies, many groups have tried things ranging from acupuncture to music therapy to massage therapy during transplant to help to improve wellness. And it's just hard because they're limited one, by the availability of those, you know, uh, practitioners, and two, very difficult to kind of move those resources between sites in a standardized manner. And I think the advantage of this is that, you know, the, 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 the cohort of coaches, you know, employed by PAC Health can really work with multiple sites and are very, you know, standardizable, so to speak, between institutions, which I think is important to make this more widely adoptable. Um, we still have some challenges. I think we're still working on figuring out you know, how do we address patients who don't speak English or caregivers who don't speak English? But I think the caregiver piece we haven't spoken to about is also quite important because our caregivers for these patients are also skipping work, also undergoing a lot of stress. Um, and the patients who don't own or patients or caregivers who don't own phones themselves, do we give them an iPad? Do we use landlines? Things like that, I think, is one future direction that we're going to work on. Um, and then I think in terms of the quality and the offerings of a curriculum, Kelly will be able to speak to this better than I can, but I think the uh, the possibility of wearables, um, of adding in, you know, wearable devices to track physical activity, I think would be a really nice complement to this. Um, the data on wearables themselves, purely wearables for physical activity in myeloma is a bit more mixed, I think, because patients just often it's like a gimmick for them, right? You give them, if you give a patient a Fitbit, that's not enough to really get them, for most patients, to motivate them to use it to improve their wellness, improve the physical activity. But you pair that with a life coach who's able to see the data and work with them, you might get a really good synergistic effect. Kelly is the expert here, so I'll, I'll let her take it from here. Yeah, I think everything that you've spoken to, Dr. Banerjee, is so spot on. And in fact, we are collaborating with new studies that we'll be launching in early 2022 that are going to examine just these outcomes, um, the impact of wearable technology or outcomes related to wearable technology. I think there's exciting work that's also been funded by the FDA that's focusing on how we might be able to correlate patient-reported wearable and clinical data, again, in some type of predictive capacity. So that's going to be a really important future direction. Um, In terms of our work, we're expanding these studies to move beyond the transplant space and to further down the trajectory in multiple myeloma for the relapsed refractory populations. So we're really looking forward to seeing how we can apply this model um, across the multiple myeloma continuum and to be able to continue to support individuals to live their happiest, healthiest lives as they move forward from these various types of therapies and also So certainly for this population as they manage multiple myeloma as a chronic condition. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing this great research with us. Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatments 
all found at onkdata.com.